0: The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists. The American Association of Anatomists is a scientific membership organization advancing anatomical science through research, education, and professional development. For information on its range of membership options, scientific meetings, and available grants and funding, please visit www.anatomy.org.
1: Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, Working Heart or Heartly Working?
0: I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance. Anything you hear on this podcast. Today's podcast is going to focus on the topic of heart attacks. We have an amazing multidisciplinary team here to discuss the topic. First, we have Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan.
2: Hi, I'm a medical student.
0: Next, we have Georgie. Hi, Georgie. Hi, Michelle. So, I'm a medical practitioner. And finally, we have Roger. Hi, Roger.
1: Hi, Michelle. I think I'm your tame physiologist. So, Michelle, I've heard a bit
2: of buzz recently about how NSAIDs, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, might be linked to heart attacks. So, these are pretty common drugs, like Nurofen and um, Naprosyn that we all might have in our medicine cabinet at home. So, it's a bit concerning to hear that they might increase the risk of heart attack. Have you heard about this, or do you know if there's an increased risk?
0: That's a really good question. It's really important that we understand what a heart attack is or in medical terms, what a myocardial infarction really is.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, Michelle. A lot of confusion I've seen in people is what a heart attack actually is and how that is confused with cardiac arrest. So when we're talking about heart attack, we're talking about myocardial infarction. Cardiac arrest is a separate condition where the heart stops
0: beating. So let's dissect as an anatomist, that term myocardial infarction. Myocardium actually means heart tissue. So myo means muscle and cardium means heart. Infarct, at least in modern language, refers to dead tissue that dies because of lack of perfusion or blood supply. So when we put it all together, myocardial infarction means death of heart tissue due to poor perfusion or blood supply.
2: A myocardial infarction is when the heart isn't getting enough blood. So where does the heart normally get its blood from?
0: The heart's main purpose is to pump blood to the rest of the body. But then that begs the question of how the heart tissue itself gets blood supply. So the blood supply to the heart is via the coronary vessels. The coronary vessels occur right at the beginning of the aorta. The aorta being the primary blood supply of the rest of the body.
2: Just as blood is being pumped to the rest of the body, a small amount of it is diverted especially to the heart. So what
1: exactly happens in the heart tissue when the blood supply is blocked? The heart is a muscle and it's a really, really active muscle. So it uses a lot of energy. The energy supply in the body is a molecule called adenosine triphosphate or it's abbreviated to ATP. And so the heart muscle uses a lot of this ATP and it's produced within a small compartment within each of the cells called a mitochondria and it uses oxygen. Now we can also make ATP without oxygen but it's a very inefficient process. So in the absence of oxygen the heart muscle can't produce enough ATP to drive the activity that it has. Consequently there's a reduction in the ability the heart to pump out blood. But also the lack of oxygen to the tissue and the buildup of toxic metabolites leads to the death of the tissue, which is what's called the infarct. The other interesting thing about all of this is that there's also damage to the tissue when the blood supply gets reconnected. So we call that reperfusion injury. We don't really understand causes reperfusion injury but one thing that we think is important is that those little mitochondria once they get some oxygen back rather than using that oxygen to make ATP they sort of leak the oxygen but in a different form in a form called superoxide which is a free radical which can damage the tissue. If all of this damage happens
2: once the heart loses its blood supply how does that blood supply get blocked in the first place?
1: It can occur from a few causes, but the most common one is the formation of a blood clot at the site of what's called an atherosclerotic plaque.
0: An atherosclerotic means thickening or blockage of an artery, and it can actually be due to immune cells moving into the area or the thickening of the muscular wall of the artery itself.
1: So the acute event occurs when this blood clot, which uh, is called a thrombus, breaks away from the vessel wall and at which point it's then called an embolus. Because the coronary circulation narrows as it branches, at some point this blood clot is going to get stuck. And at that point it's called a thromboembolism. So the trick is that if you're going to have a thromboembolism, to have a small one that gets stuck in a tiny little blood vessel rather than a large one which gets stuck in a large blood vessel.
0: So it's kind of like a tree. If you picture a tree and the distal twigs, you'd rather have a blockage there than all the way back at the main trunk.
3: Clinically, one of those blockages at the main trunk is what we might term a proximal left anterior descending artery or LAD occlusion. Colloquially, sometimes clinicians refer to this as a widowmaker as uh, it can result in quite sudden death. So for students studying anatomy, particularly the anatomy of the coronary arteries, have a think about some of the variations around blood supply to the heart and how uh, lesions in different areas of the coronary arteries
0: might impact the different tissues that are supplied. Ooh, so a blockage of one person's coronary artery might be totally different outcome than a blockage of somebody else's coronary artery. Exactly, Michelle. Hmm.
2: Obviously, we get these blockages and the heart tissue then loses its blood supply. But obviously, when we think about heart attacks, the main thing is the pain. So obviously, on TV shows, you see people clutching at their chests or describing pain shooting down their arm. So how does that actually happen?
0: So that's a really great question and one that isn't totally understood. But as many of my students who've had me at Monash know, my hashtag for that is hashtag matters. So if you think about where the heart developed, it actually, surprisingly, developed where the head and neck were. And then because of a fetal position, so picture when you're curling up in your bed studying heart anatomy, uh, that position and an embryo forces the heart from that neck region into the thoracic region. The thing about it is before it migrates, before that heart moves from that location in the cervical or neck region into the thorax region, it already has its innervation. So what happens when your heart undergoes death and pain is sensed, your body gets confused and it goes back to where it all began in the cervical region or in the neck region. And so you actually refer to what's called the supraclavicular nerves or the nerves that cover your collarbone.
2: Sometimes on the ward, you see some patients who don't even know that they've had a heart attack. So it's sort of the opposite of that; they don't even realize that they've had a heart attack, and they don't even feel any pain. So how does that work?
3: You bring up a good point, and one of the main patient groups we see who experience these what we term silent myocardial infarcts are diabetics. Okay, so what we're presuming is happening in this in these patients, whilst it's still an area that does need some research, is we're assuming there's some dysfunction with their nerves. So diabetics, one of the problems they experience is injury to their nerve tissues, Okay, particularly the autonomic nerves, the nerves that supply their various organs. So if there's damage to those nerve pathways, they might not experience pain uh, like someone without diabetes, or indeed they might experience different symptoms.
0: Oh, I see, so diabetes, results in poor nerve development or damage to the nerves. And so therefore, because you don't have the nerves intact, they don't sense the pain. Exactly.
2: Georgie, obviously myocardial infarctions are emergencies, but why are they so time sensitive?
0: The
3: reason for this is the difference between ischemia and infarction. So ischemia is a lack of blood supply to tissues, in this case the myocardium, which causes the shortage of oxygen and that energy molecule, the ATP, that Roger was talking about before. Infarction is the death of tissue due to this adequate blood supply and thus energy. So if ischemia is allowed to progress untreated, it will eventually result in infarction. Okay, Myocardium is a tissue that can't regenerate the number of heart cells or myocytes you have. Once they die, you can't produce any more of them. So if we lose them through infarction, that's a permanent loss of functioning heart tissue.
0: So we can't exercise and make more heart tissue?
3: No. You can increase the size or hypertrophy the heart tissue, but you can't make more.
2: Okay, so when someone does have chest pain and they come to the hospital thinking it might be a heart attack... Hmm. How do we tell if it is a heart attack or isn't one, and also how do we treat them once we've decided?
3: That's a big topic, so I'll do my best to break it down. So in a patient coming in with chest pain, we start their assessment as we would start their assessment for a patient coming into hospital for any other reason, which is with a history, an examination, and appropriate investigations. So the history part of it is where we ask the patient about the symptoms they're experiencing. So if we're worried about a heart attack, we'd specifically ask them about some of the things we've mentioned, like the chest pain and the arm pain. Examination is having a look at the patient. And in a, someone with a suspected heart attack, that would include doing things like checking their heart rate and their blood pressure, which can indicate problems with the heart. When it comes to investigations, we have two key ones that we use for suspected heart attacks, and they are the electrocardiogram, or ECG, and the troponin, a type of cardiac enzyme, which are molecules leaked from an injured heart, which we measure in a blood test.
0: So they would only show up when heart tissue itself had been damaged. Yeah, exactly.
3: So if you're, I guess, at all concerned, you need to get to hospital to see a doctor.
1: The really cool thing about these tests is that uh, they're really sensitive. So they're able to pick up damage to the heart, uh, indeed a heart attack that even the person that's had the heart attack hasn't noticed. Mm -hmm. The other uh, great thing about them is that because they're sort of quantitative tests, you can use them to gauge the severity of the heart attack.
0: So you can identify how much heart tissue has been damaged based on the release of these troponins.
1: To a certain extent, but you can also do that with the ECG.
3: Yeah, exactly. So using the ECG, we sometimes break up heart attacks or another terminology that's used by clinicians now is the acute coronary syndrome or ACS. Sometimes we break the ACS up into what are known as STEMIs and non-STEMIs. That sounds pretty complicated, But I guess if you imagine seeing the heartbeat that's shown on monitors and TV programs, how it goes up and down, okay, that's the ECG. It's basically made by using small electrodes that are placed on the skin that are hooked up to a machine, and it measures very small electrical changes in the skin caused by the heartbeat. And doctors basically look at the pattern that's produced to diagnose different problems with the heart, That pattern has different names for the different parts of the pattern, and one of those parts of the pattern is called the ST segment. Normally, that's a flat line, but if it becomes elevated, that can be a sign of myocardial ischemia. So if we see that in an ECG, we refer to that as a ST elevation myocardial infarction, or STEMI. That's a sign of a a pretty severe heart attack generally. There are some smaller changes that you can see in an ECG short of the ST elevation. Sometimes that ST segment, instead of going up, can go down. Or the T wave, which is a little curved part of the ECG, they can flip. And those are other signs that someone's having a heart attack. That's where the troponin comes in. Because if we don't see that ST elevation, but there are other signs of a heart attack, including chest pain, or an elevated troponin, that's when we might use the term non-STEMI, or a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. In basic terms, the STEMI is the more severe one, so it's treated more aggressively than the non-STEMI.
1: And am I right, Georgie, that they're particularly dangerous because uh, people that have a STEMI heart attack are at really high risk of ventricular fibrillation, which is basically when the ventricle is not able to generate enough force to be able to uh, push blood out of the heart.
3: Exactly. And that brings up that confusing point we had at the start about the difference between myocardial infarction or heart attack and cardiac arrest. If someone goes into ventricular Fibrillation or VF, where their ventricle isn't pumping effectively, that then can lead to cardiac arrest where the heart stops pumping, and thus we end up with a little overlapping Venn diagram type situation where a heart attack can cause cardiac arrest.
2: Just to clarify, the ventricle is the part of the heart that really does most of the pumping out of the heart?
0: Yeah, so the ventricle itself is the strongest portion of the heart tissue or heart muscle, and it will pump into that aorta, that really large vascular supply to the rest of the body. And it's during the rest of the ventricle that the actual heart tissue fills. So the coronary arteries fill with oxygenated blood when the ventricle is at rest. And then when it pumps again, the rest of the blood goes out to the rest of the body. During rest, the coronary arteries fill, and the heart tissue gets oxygenated.
3: Some people may have heard of the terms systole and diastole. That's what Michelle's describing there. So systole is where the ventricle contracts and expels the blood and diastole is where it relaxes. So if you get your blood pressure measured, usually they're measuring the systolic blood pressure with the first number and the diastolic with the second. So the coronary arteries are filling during the diastole.
2: I think we have a pretty good handle on what causes heart attacks, and how we pick them up. But once we've done that, how do we actually treat them?
3: So I guess we can break this topic into initial treatment and then more specialised treatment that's aimed to reperfuse the heart. When it comes to initial treatment, we're really talking about medications that can easily be given to help the patient. One of these is aspirin. Aspirin has what's termed an antiplatelet effect. Platelets are a part of our blood, that clump together to help form clots. So if we, if we can stop this, we can help stop clots forming and thus the heart attack worsening. We also give the patients morphine and nitrates. Morphine is a strong opioid-based painkiller which can help with chest pain. And nitrates such as anginine, a small tablets or a spray that are given under the tongue and result in vasodilatation or the widening of blood vessels, which can improve blood flow to the heart.
0: And the reason why you give them under the tongue is because there's actually a great deal of blood supply under the tongue that allows for rapid distribution of this treatment.
1: There's an interesting story about that, because they these drugs work by donating uh, nitric oxide, uh, and someone won the uh, Nobel Prize for that a few years back. But uh, the Nobel Prize was actually, of course, named after... Uh, Mr. Nobel, and he made his money with an explosive called nitroglycerin, which t- was actually the first of these drugs to be used. So it's an explosive and a drug.
3: Actually, talking about movies reminds me that usually in the movies and TV shows, you see patients with chest pain having lots of having oxygen put in through a face mask or nasal prongs. That's actually an area of practice that's changed quite recently. So we don't routinely give supplemental oxygen to patients having heart attacks anymore because recent studies have shown that it can actually be damaging and worsen the size of the infarct. So unless someone's oxygen levels are actually low, known as hypoxia, we don't automatically give them oxygen. Moving on to the more specialized treatment or reperfusion techniques. So the aims of reperfusion techniques are to reopen the coronary arteries to allow blood to get to where it needs to go. We can do that with thrombolysis or clot buster medication, which will effectively dissolve the clot. We can squash the clot against the wall with a balloon or use a little wire cage to hold the coronary artery open so that's angioplasty and stenting, or we can make a bypass around the blockage by sewing in a new pipe, which is bypass surgery.
2: From what I understand, the clot-busting medication is given into veins, is that right, as a sort of injection? That's correct. And then how does the percutaneous coronary intervention work? How do we actually get into the heart?
3: So to get into the heart, we need to know the basic roadmap of the arteries in the body. So the two ways we can get into the heart are by putting a needle either into the radial artery in the wrist or the femoral artery in the groin and then travelling back against the direction of blood flow into that big blood vessel that Michelle mentioned, the aorta, and then into the coronary arteries from there. And then injecting dye through the arteries that will also show up on
0: x-ray to highlight where any narrowings and blockages are. So essentially, if you use the femoral approach, you're going to go into the femoral artery. And then using the iliac arteries, you'll travel back through the abdominal aorta into the thoracic aorta and then back to the coronary arteries. So for those studying anatomy, one of the important things you want to pay attention to are potential complications, which may occur specifically around the convoluted entrance associated with the external iliacs. So if you pierce the external iliacs, one thing that if you're studying anatomy, you may want to pay attention to is where that blood would pool.
2: You also mentioned a technique where you route around the clot. I assume that that would involve open heart surgery. When does that happen?
3: Yeah, so coronary artery bypass grafts, sometimes referred to clinicians as cabbages or cags, are what most people in the community know as open heart surgery. So we need to open the chest for that. To do that, we do what's called a stenotomy, cutting through the sternum or the breastbone. That the decision to do that is a pretty complex one that involves a team of different clinicians coming together to discuss the individual patient. So it will probably involve a cardiologist, that's a specialist physician, and a cardiothoracic surgeon, the surgeon who does heart surgery as well as chest surgery. Some of the main reasons why someone may need to have um, coronary artery bypass surgery are if they have a very severe, very proximal Narrowing or occlusion, so that left main coronary artery or the left anterior descending artery that I mentioned before, or sometimes what's known as triple vessel disease, which is where there's a high grade um, narrowing in the left anterior descending, alternatively known as the anterior interventricular artery, the left circumflex and the right coronary artery. It also comes down a little bit to any other health problems the patient has and whether they're fit to undergo big surgery with a general anaesthetic.
2: Now that we've simply fixed the heart attack, um, what happens afterwards? Will the body return to normal?
1: So that depends upon the severity of the damage, which is dependent upon two things. Firstly, how bad the infarct was in the first place and secondly, how... Effective the intervention is to ameliorate that damage. We have to remember that, as Georgie pointed out earlier, we can't make new heart cells. So basically, it depends on the size of the loss of the tissue. So if it's a small amount of tissue, then people can function pretty normally. If it's a larger amount of tissue, they might be okay while they're at rest, but if they exercise, they might not be able to get their cardiac output up enough to be able to exercise effectively. And if it's very severe damage, then they really do have heart failure uh, and under those circumstances, that can impede their ability to go about their daily lives and really in that case, the only alternative is a heart transplant.
2: So you mentioned heart failure. That sounds pretty serious. Could you explain a little bit more about that?
3: I can probably talk about that one, Jonathan. So heart failure, whilst it sounds pretty serious, is actually a very wide spectrum of what constitutes heart failure. Heart failure is a syndrome in which the heart is unable to pump adequately to keep up with the body's workload. So that could be a workload with a significant amount of exercise where someone can't keep up, or it could be just sitting at home in a chair where the heart can't keep up when someone's at rest. Essentially, what happens in heart failure depends a little bit on which part of the heart is affected and whether it's the left side, the right side or both. If the heart can't pump effectively, you can imagine it's going to lead to a backing up of fluid in the areas of the body that connect to that part of the heart. So if we're talking about the left side of the heart, that receives blood flow from the lungs. So if the left side isn't pumping effectively, that can lead to backing up of fluid in the lungs known as pulmonary edema or what uh, might be termed as fluid on the lungs. If it's the right side, that's receiving blood from the rest of the body. So that can present as peripheral edema or swelling of your ankles um, and liver congestion. Sometimes both sides aren't working effectively and we refer to that as biventricular failure. Um, We generally classify heart failure using a system called the New York Heart Association Functional Classification with four different classes. In basic terms, class one is where you don't experience many symptoms related to heart failure, right up to class four, where you can't carry out any physical activity without experiencing significant symptoms such as shortness of breath. Um, you might even start experiencing symptoms at rest.
0: I think what's important when we think about the heart tissue itself too is that it's just like a muscle, like your biceps. The more you use it, the bigger it gets. But the difference with the heart is that it's actually a vessel. It has to hold fluid in it. So the larger the muscle gets, the less space there is for blood within it.
1: And and there are really two kinds of what we call cardiac hypertrophy there's the good kind which you get from exercising uh, which we call eccentric cardiac hypertrophy so that's basically when the heart grows from the inside out and there's concentric hypertrophy which is the bad type which is particularly caused by high blood pressure and that's basically when the heart muscle goes grows from the outside in and so the size of the chamber gets smaller
3: Roger brings up a really good point. It's not just heart attacks that lead to heart failure. There are many different causes, such as high blood pressure, diabetes, problems with the valves of the heart, alcoholism, not just coronary artery disease.
2: It sounds like there are a lot more complications from heart attacks than what might be presented on TV or in the media, and it really seems like an ongoing process. So what might we do to prevent them in the first place?
3: So there are some risk factors we know that by minimising them can lower your risk of heart attack. Those are being a smoker, having high blood pressure, having high cholesterol, having diabetes, being obese, leading a sedentary lifestyle and consuming excess alcohol. So any of those things that we can completely stop, we stop, such as quitting smoking Any conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes that we can manage, we try to optimise them as best we can. So practically, that means visiting your GP to have these conditions monitored and being on any potential medication that can improve them.
2: Well, with today's sedentary lifestyle and poor diet, it's really, I guess, no wonder that cardiovascular disease is one of the biggest killer of men and women in Australia. Just to bring this all back to... The NSAIDs that we mentioned at the start, ibuprofen and naproxen that we might have in our pantries. Should I not reach for ibuprofen next time I have a headache?
3: Yeah, that's a really complex question, Jonathan. For people listening at home, they might know some of these medications as nurofen or naproxen or even Voltaren. Uh, and they're commonly taken for conditions such as Arthritis. For many years now, we've known that there has been an association with some particular medications in this class. So some people might remember the scandal around a medication known as Viox, which was withdrawn from the market over 10 years ago now due to concerns over increased cardiac risk. More recently, the topic has come to the fore again because a meta-analysis was published in the British Medical Journal in May of 2017 on the topic.
0: And a meta-analysis is a very critical type of manuscript, which involves pooling data from similar studies across decades to look at population-based outcomes. Exactly. So it's a really large
3: study. And when we're talking about research, we care about large numbers because it gives us a more accurate result. This particular meta-analysis involved over 400,000 individuals, including about 60,000 who had an acute myocardial infarction. Basically, this meta-analysis showed that it's not just the COX-2 inhibitors. They're a particular type of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that includes Vioxx that I mentioned, but all non-steroidal anti-inflammatories increased risk. And this happened at any dose and immediately after exposure. Specifically, some of the results that they reported were with use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories for one to seven days. The probability of increased myocardial infarction risk was 92% for celecoxib, 97% for ibuprofen, that's nurofen, and 99% for diclofenac, naproxen, and Rofocoxib. An important bit not to confuse with these results... It's not saying that 92% of patients taking these medications had a heart attack, just that their risk overall increased risk of having one was increased by that much. So, for example, if someone originally had a very low risk of having a heart attack and we increased that risk by 92%, their overall risk might still be very low. To answer your question, Jonathan, there's fairly robust evidence that NSAIDs are associated with an increased risk of acute myocardial infarction. However, because of what I was saying about people already at low risk of having a heart attack, whether or not you should take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory if you think you need one is really quite a complex decision now. So I would urge anyone who's worried about this to have a chat with your GP and discuss your individual risks and benefits with taking different medications.
2: So is that percentage risk something that will sort of stay with the patient or is it only
1: when they're actually taking the drugs? They analysed uh, the impact of taking these drugs for various periods of time, uh, over a period of a couple of days to over periods of uh, weeks and months, and what they found was that if you take it for longer, it doesn't actually increase your risk pretty much the same risk as, ta- as observed if you take it for three days as for taking it for a longer period. So it seems that it's the actual, if you like, acute effects of taking the drug that increase your risk.
2: Okay, so why exactly is there an association between this class of drugs and heart attacks?
1: NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, are a complex class of drugs, but they all have one thing in common. They block an enzyme that's called cyclooxygenase, which converts a a fatty molecule in the membrane of cells into a group of lipid molecules called prostanoids. Now, they're a complex group of prostanoids, and also there are two kinds of cyclooxygenase. There's cyclooxygenase 1 and cyclooxygenase 2. And these two enzymes appear in different parts of the Body. So therefore, drugs that selectively block one of these enzymes, either cyclooxygenase 1 or cyclooxygenase 2, have a slightly different sort of profile of activity. Now, the critical thing is that all of these drugs, because they block cyclooxygenase, block the production of a good prostaglandin called prostacyclin. And this uh, prostacyclin inhibits the, cl- the, the clumping together of platelets, which is kind of the first part in the formation of a blood clot. So if you block this enzyme, you're more likely to lead to the um, uh, formation of a blood clot. Interestingly, aspirin is also a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, but it has a very interesting profile of action because at very low doses it irreversibly blocks another enzyme in the whole pathway which produces a rather nasty prostaglandin called thromboxane A2. And thromboxane A2 activates this platelet aggregation pathway. So therefore, if you take small doses of aspirin, then it blocks this pathway of platelet aggregation and so actually reduces your risk of having uh, a heart attack. The trick, of course, is not to take too much. Right. So
2: when we take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for pain, for example, that effect that you mentioned of blocking cyclooxygenase downstream reduces the amount of pain that you're feeling, but also increases your clot risk. Is that right?
1: Yes, even in the case of aspirin. So doses of aspirin that relieve pain will also block or reduce the production of prostacyclin. So it's a bit tricky.
0: So that's why when they talk about aspirin and helping prevent heart disease, they specifically highlight the low dose of aspirin.
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: But I think that's all we have time for today. I want to thank my interdisciplinary team, and we look forward to our next podcast. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to Ask Anatomus and use the hashtag AnatQ.